evidence and answers. Is there a connection between Christian faith and the arts? Why should Christians care about the arts? What does art teach us about God, about ourselves? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, we will discover the purpose of the arts and how the arts can be a powerful witness for the gospel of Christ. Pat and his guest, Dr. Joel Paulus, will be discussing Christianity and the arts. Now, on to part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, is there a connection between Christian faith and the arts? Why should Christians care about the arts? What does art teach us about God, about ourselves? Well, to help us address these issues today is Joel Paulus. Dr. Joel Paulus holds a Ph.D. from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a Master's of Arts in Christian Apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary, and a Bachelor in Fine Arts in Musical Theater from Sam Houston State University, and a Trainee Certificate from the Joffrey Ballet School in New York City. He continues to perform with regional dance companies and with the Metropolitan Opera. Dr. Paulus serves as the Director of Research at Southern Evangelical Seminary and serves as Artist-in-Residence with the Union County Youth Ballet. So, Joel, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Glad to be here. Well, Joel, tell us, why should Christians care about the arts? Excellent question. And I would say that the first thing that we learn about God when we open the book of Genesis is that he is a creator. God is a creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so later on, as we read the text, we find that humankind is created in God's image, and as such, would reflect that creative aspect of his character, of his being. And so we are creative creatures that are created in the image of God. And so creativity and the act of making something is intrinsic to the world that we live in. And so number one, we have a God as a creator. So we should be concerned on that level for sure. And then as we live, uh, we are, we, and, and become a born again, we are new creations. So the creative process even continues into the Christian life and the spiritual walk that we have, not just the a creation of the earth and, and everything in it. Secondly, I would say that art is primarily uh, a means of communication. And God is a communicator, and we are commanded to communicate the good news. And so art is a part of that in bringing God's message to the world, making him known. We do that through uh, various medium, and that is an artistic endeavor. Even R.C. Sproul said that every form is an art form, and every art form communicates something. So everything that we see is in some way communicating a message on some level, and there are varying degrees. And third, I would say that transcendence is key to the interest of a Christian in the arts, uh, concerned with the arts. Transcendence is something that just points beyond ourselves or points beyond an object. So an artwork is not merely the material, but it's also pointing beyond the material to communicate. So again, we have communication in the art form. We have a transcendence, so it's pointing beyond itself. And already we have a picture of back in Genesis where there's a God transcending, God who transcends space and time as a creator. 
And these symbols that we have in different works of art can be direct, like, for instance, the shape of a cross. It's more than just the wood. It also it has a lot of significance. There's a lot of meaning in that symbol. The dove, or even uh, symbols that aren't necessarily religious, like a heart shape, has a symbol to it. And then there are non-visual like metaphors, like non-symbolic metaphors that communicate beyond themselves. For instance, certain colors and poetry, certain idioms and language, and even sounds, sounds and the way certain musical instruments are played or, or can be evocative of different images and communicate something. They have meaning behind them. So that's why I would say that Christians should be concerned with the arts. Yes, you know, uh, you mentioned a good point. You know, when God created the universe, he created a beautiful creation with beauty and symmetry and colors. When he told the story of salvation, I mean, he told it through a very creative means, through story. That's right. Uh, poetry, through music, through narrative. So it seems that the artistic creativity is intrinsic in God and intrinsic in his people created in his image. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, you know, wherever I go around the world, that just seems to be natural in people to express themselves, you know, in different forms of art. I mean, there's not a place you can go in the world where there isn't some form of music and dance and painting of some sort. It just seems to be intrinsic in us as part of part of being created in the image of God. That's right. It's a part of being human. It's a trait of being a human being wherever you are. Every culture, every nation, every ethnicity, every tribe. I can't think of any culture that does not have music or dance or story of some kind. And, you know, I remember even in different art classes and anthropology classes, you, you study a culture, you learn about a culture by looking at their artwork. What they leave behind is usually a cultural artifacts. You know, we look at you know, really ancient you know, pottery, paintings, sculptures, what was made that was left behind. We can learn something about the culture through their artwork. We learn something about their values. We learn something about their way of life and even their religious beliefs. And you talked also about communication, that God communicates to us through very creative means and some of the best ways of presenting the gospel is through you know, creative means. I know a lot of people that may not read a gospel tract or a, you know, theological work, but they'll read the Chronicles of Narnia. That's know, right. And John Bunyan, you know, Pilgrim's Progress and others. So it's a powerful way to communicate truths of the gospel. Yes, that's exactly right. And Bach has even been called the fifth evangelist wow. after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the music of Bach, especially in Japan, wow. uh, the music of Bach is recognized as having the spiritual ethos comes through in the music, which is transcultural. Again, it's the good thing about the arts is that it can be appreciated across cultures as well. And it is done without the need for translation necessarily, which is good. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word and the preaching, and the word is important. However, the music, if you're familiar with the pianist Dino Kartanakis, he was on a tour of Asia once, which is probably 30, 40 years ago, and Westerners were, it was very difficult to get through into some of the areas he was going, but he would play, you know, instrumental piano music, and then he started playing Christian songs, 
and he, he said that once he, he started playing an instrumental version of What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and people started singing along, and it blew his mind. <laughs> he, wow. said that, he said, you know, there's testimony and ministry even within instrumental music without the words. So he said it was incredibly moving. Wow, yeah. You know, I, I just came back from Japan. Less than 1% of that country has received Christ, yet, uh, as you state, you know, Music and the arts is a universal form of worship. And as barren as that country is regarding, you know, spirituality with with Christ, they're very open and receptive to Bach and, and other forms of music in which the gospel may not be blatantly proclaimed there, but it is in there. Yes, it's in there covertly. It's in there underpinning everything. And I would even go so far as to say that the possibility of music sounding beautiful rests upon the, the rationality of it, and that we find uh, that reason and rationality comes from God, that we are created in God's image, uh, of course, and that the rationality is a part of that image as well. The whole person, the whole person reflects this image, but the fact that we can, as human beings, recognize and appreciate sound in a certain pattern, at a certain pitch, and it moves us, whereas you see animals don't necessarily sit down to look at a sunset and contemplate it, and they don't sit and listen to a symphony all the way through. An animal might come up and eat a bouquet of flowers, <laughs> whereas right, human beings will see the meaning through the medium. There's a message that's coming through it. There's something of value there. There's something good, true, and beautiful, and those are the things that our intellect is grasping. It's grasping that universal that transcends time, space, place, and matter. Yes, indeed. Well, Joel, tell us, you know, about your background in the arts and theology. Yes, I, well, I became a Christian at the age of eight, hearing the gospel and being raised with Christian parents and, and going to church and hearing Bible stories and I came to a point where I realized that I was sinner by nature and I could do nothing about it but receive the gift of forgiveness by uh, Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross in my place. I accepted that free gift at the age of eight, and about the same time, I really started my journey as an artist learning music, singing, of course, in, in our choir at church with the, with the children, and then taking piano lessons, and then later studying violin, and then I also studied uh, dance. And then I got into theater in high school, and through all of this experience, the opportunity arose for me to audition for a program where I could combine them all in musical theater, which is acting, singing, and dancing all in like a play format, like a Broadway. And so there's story, plot, song, dancing, everything's in it, music, dance, everything I'd studied. And then through that, I developed far along enough of my dance technique where I was invited to come to New York City and study at the Joffrey Ballet School, and from there, danced with various regional companies, Rochester City Ballet and Contemporary Ballet Theater in New York, and then would do guest artists. And I found myself at that point becoming something of a, a traveling artistic missionary. I would be uh, hired to dance a prince role in a ballet somewhere, and people would want to get to know you, and I would explain my background and, and then talk about, well, oh, you're a Christian and you dance, really? And so I'd start to explain to them how the two are not mutually exclusive. And it began to really get into my head that, wow, you know, there's a lot to examine here. But I didn't think much about it until 
I had a uh, contract end, and I found myself with no immediate prospects, but I had spent all of my free time studying theology in order to uh, talk with people backstage, because people, people backstage would have questions, and we, had, we had, would talk, and I would say, that's a really interesting uh, thought. Let me get back to you on that. And I found that I was really doing uh, theology and apologetics, and I found a school and went to study under Norman Geisler, the discipline of apologetics and theology. And he said, you know, you really um, ought to combine your, your two backgrounds. And so I did my master's thesis on the apologetic value of classical ballet. And he said, you know, this is really creative and really good. I've never seen anything like this. You really ought to expand this and do PhD work on it. And so I uh, reached out to two people, Dr. Jeremy Begbie at, at Duke University, uh, who was a great mentor in helping me get things organized. And then I ended up studying under Bruce uh, Little, who at the time was the director of the uh, Bush Center for Faith and Culture, and who was a disciple of uh, Francis Schaeffer. And so I wrote under him a uh, theological examination of classical ballet. And that is how it all came together. <laughs> yes, wow. You know, when I talked to a lot of Christians, and we were talking about the Christian worldview, how Christianity is an all-embracing worldview about all of reality. And I talk about art and a lot of them are surprised. They're like, what, what, what what's <laughs> theology got, got to do with the arts? You know, so, you know, explain to us how arts, you know, relate to, to theology and natural theology. Oh, sure. Art and theology are very close as far as the experience goes. would say that that was the aesthetic experience is very close to the religious experience and the fact that we have, we, when you go to a religious service of any kind, you're going to be, have certain you know, music, your senses are going to be engaged, uh, visuals, uh, hearing, you're going to stand sometimes, you're going to kneel sometimes to pray, so your body's involved, you're aware of your space. Same thing with an aesthetic experience, there's going to be sights and sounds. Sometimes if you're talking about, you know, food and presentation, there's, you know, the culinary arts, that engages your senses as well. Often I give an example when I speak on this, if you imagine walking up to a, a building and you're handed a, maybe a piece of paper, you're greeted, you sit into a, an, into a large room with a bunch of other people and you smell maybe, you know, a, a scent of some sort, like a perfume, and there's somebody up front and they begin to speak or they begin to sing and everyone has a, a universal response to that. Now, did I just describe a theater performance or a church service? And it's, it's really ambiguous, wow. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. It's, it's very close, almost scary. <laughs> but I think that what's one reason is why the arts are so powerful and why uh, religious services can be so moving is because we are wired. We are, we are created to be receptive to this kind of, environment. We are, desires are shaped by the aesthetic experience. We are bodily beings that are created in real time and space with these senses, and our, all of our sense organs are taking in data, and our mind is processing it. So we're like a mobile machine that's also spiritual at the same time, and we're interacting between these two worlds almost, although it's still one world. We have the physical created world, but the spiritual and the universal and non-material aspects of that are all present and in the same place at the same time. And so the theatrical or aesthetic or religious experiences 
help us to bridge that for a moment. And we have a, that's where the transcendence comes in again, where the longing, that the desire for the spiritual, that original Garden of Eden, that perfection that has been lost with the fall, with sin, we all desire on some level for that. And there's many ways that people approach it. They try to you know, fill it with entertainment. Maybe the government is going to solve everything. But ultimately, God's redemption and how everything is going to uh, play out in his story through Christ as the center will restore everything to that immediate relationship that humankind had with God in the Garden of Eden. But that these glimpses of that, I think, happen in, not only in, these, in the religious services, but they, we can have a, a secular glimpse of that through the artistic experience, whether we're looking at paintings and sculpture, listening to music, uh, watching dance. We have almost a similar reaction, a response to that in our, in our being. Yes, you know, we just seem to be naturally drawn to things that are artistic, that display symmetry, that display beauty. Yeah. You, you know, nobody wants a picture of someone being shot hanging in their living room. I mean, they want a sunset. They want portraits of the Grand Canyon or family or a field of flowers or something like that. I mean, we, we just seem to be naturally drawn. And when we see that painting that's beautiful, it seems to reflect the mind of the painter. And, you know, I don't have much of an art background. I got kicked out of all my art classes. Uh, <laughs> But here in Hawaii, we got some famous painters and I feel like, you know, even before I met them, I know some of them because I've just looked so much at their paintings and the things that they're highlighting. I seem to kind of know them before I even meet them. Yes. And I guess, (laughs) yeah, that's what you're saying when we look at creation and the artistic mind of God. uh, Yes. Creation. And you mentioned natural theology. I would say that what we mean by that is what can we know by looking at the natural world about God? Is there something, well, shall we call it, uh, very carefully sacramental in the sense that not that experiencing these things makes us holy in any sense, but it points our minds toward uh, the holy. So a work of art, for instance, a painting, anything made has to have a maker, a very simple teleological argument, any, any, or, or cause, any, any, any kind of, anything made must have had a, purpose, had a maker and have a purpose. So the artwork is not the maker, but there's something about the artwork that makes something about the maker knowable. And something of the artist is in the painting without being there directly. So if you read, you know, reading a novel, you can, or hearing a, a song, you can almost recognize who wrote the song by how it sounds, you know, a signature sound or the style of painting or, uh, the way that the sculpture is made, there's something left behind, especially if the artist's hands were, were actually on it, you know, and it was sculpted directly by the artist rather than you know, made by a machine pressed and manufactured robotically. But still, something about the mind of the maker is there. And there's a very excellent book, a very deep book written by Dorothy L. Sayers on the theology of making and the mind of the maker. And a very profound insight I'll just give very quickly is that the illustration she uses is a book because she was an author, and she goes very deep into all the intricacies of how to write a story. And But she comes to this point where the book itself is examined, and she says it's a, it's a, 
a picture of the Trinity is as far as a person goes who believes a book exists and you can read it is a theist. And she says, here's why. Because you have a book in your hand. Well, the book contains the thought of the author. You can't see the thought of the author directly, but through the book in print in a physical form, you can experience it. And once the information in the book is in the reader's mind, now there's illumination. And so the book is thought, she compares to God the Father. She compares the physical book that contains the thought as the Son, and then the thought in the mind of the reader as the Holy Spirit who indwells and illumines the, the believer or the reader in this analogy. So you have book as thought, book as written, and book as read, which corresponds to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit with the book being the mediator, the phys- which is in f- a physical form, takes a, takes a physical form to communicate the immaterial idea of the maker into the immaterial mind of the reader. Wow, that's good. That, yeah. That's good, yeah. Flows right into our next question, you know, which is how does truth and goodness and beauty, how does that all relate to the Christian faith and the Christian worldview? Yes, absolutely. This, again, begins all with God. Everything starts and finishes with God. And God is pure being, being itself, and creation is contingent being. So everything made by God reflects God's being in some way. And the way that we recognize this as as human beings is through the universals, the truth, goodness, and beauty. And in the medieval world, they would add unity to this. So all three of these, this triad, Goodness, truth, and beauty are one thing, and the one thing that we're describing with these three, we'll call them properties, or transcendentals is even better, is the being of the thing, of that object. If you can imagine that, now it is easy to see how every object, especially one that has been created as a work of art to communicate, would have some truth, goodness, and beauty intrinsic to it which existed prior, but now finds itself in the object that is known by the observer. And truth and goodness, of course, are a little more tricky to hash out as far as artworks go, as far as, but it's easy enough to say that an artwork that is good is going to be a true work of art, okay? True to its form. It all comes back to form for an artwork. But the beauty is going to be a subset of those two, and that's what we really see when, and talk about when it comes to artwork. We talk about, wow, that was a beautiful piece of music. That was a beautiful story. That was a beautiful painting, or even in nature, a beautiful sunset, beautiful mountain, a beautiful trees, beautiful beach. That's what we're, we're experiencing through our senses. Those are objective qualities that can be recognized universally, and then we make subjective claims about them. Wow, I find that beautiful. That's moving. I'm moved by that. So the subject is involved too, but we're looking at something universal that would have, for instance, in beauty, we would define that as something having form, clarity, and proportion. And when something has those things, form, clarity, and proportion, Something happens that captures our attention and our imagination. And that's really when beauty, when we're experiencing the being, the goodness, truth, and beauty, 
that's what we react to. That's what draws us in. And that's what can point us toward the heavenlies, point us toward the Creator, knowing that it didn't come into existence by itself, but was designed and has a purpose. That's all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website, Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hc mlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrack.